talked to Pastor Gene this week, and one of the things that he, uh, he called me specifically to say, hey, Bob, we need to be, uh, we need to have a little time of celebration and, and celebrate what God's been doing. When we think about the last years, but actually my mind was going back to eight years ago when in our home uh, in, in Newtown on the corner of Hempstead and Canal, we had about five couples that met in our home that was the initial beginnings of True Life Church. And those five couples have all either moved away. Actually, the couples that I enlisted were people that I said, hey, you don't have to stay and be part of this plant. We just want your wisdom, your prayer support, and help us to kind of cultivate and get things going. And because of my work that I do with the North American Mission Board, I wasn't going to be the planter. I, 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 I had a day job and a night job and a weekend job, but I wasn't going to stop that. Um, but at the same time, I knew that God would send us a person at the right time. And so we spent about four years of cultivative kind of stuff in Newtown. We did like, uh, we started with the schools. We started, I got to know Dr. Muzzy, and we started doing some partnership with the school, volunteering, getting to know people. We found us a partnering church in Alton, Calvary Baptist, and they came over and did prayer walks. We did, we did like uh, an Easter uh, service in the old uh, Cornerstone Restaurant, which is now Pangea, which is now going to be a Mexican place. And, uh, and we also did like a, a, a Christmas service there. We just did some little bitty uh, kind of just let's kind of put our toe in the water of Newtown and begin to, to plan to see what God might do. And then God called Gene here um, four years, four to five years ago. It's kind of the timeline gets confusing for me sometimes. But they were on a vision tour looking to where, where to plant in the St. Louis area. They felt God was calling them. And I said, we were on the bus together sitting, there was an aisle between us and we were talking while we were going to all these different places around St. Louis where we needed new churches. And, and I said, well, hey, we're, we're over here. If you wanna come check us out sometime, come do it. They did and the rest is history and God brought them here. And then we began to have more people and just little by little, the Lord's been adding to our number and he's been blessing us and we started in the home. We went from the home to the chapel when Gene first came. We went from the chapel to the school, Discovery School. And then we went from the school to this place here. And that's kind of our journey, just, just especially if you're new here today or you haven't been here in a while, that's kind of how we got to where we're at. But here's some of the things that have been happening just in the recent time. Uh, we had our drive-through food pantry, one of many that we've done. And we had over 120 cars go through, and many cars were getting food for two and three families. Uh, we have loads of love ministry where we're washing clothes for, for single moms uh, in the mobile home parks and apartment communities. Uh, we have Awanas that just got started uh, with 35 kids, I think or so, on the first night. Uh, we want to give God praise for all this. We had vacation Bible school. We had this room filled with kids, and, and we had 72 kids on our top night and a great celebration. Uh, we have a, a Thursday morning Bible study, men uh, that meets regularly. We have a Thursday morning Bible study that meets here with the women and they meet regularly. And, and we have small groups that have been started and going and gonna be reestablished. And, and we have a bus that a church gave us. We have a, how many passenger? It's a nice bus. We have a nice, and I'm a bus kid back in 19, 
70, probably 71, 72, I, I had a big blue bus that picked me up and, and, and I rode to church on a bus. My mom and dad, I think they were glad to have me gone for a little while. And, uh, and they, uh, they, they, we had the bus ministry that reached a lot of people for Jesus back in that day. And, uh, and we're gonna be able to use that bus uh, here at True Life. Uh, we, have, we have three elders now. Um, we have a children's ministry that's going strong and people are there uh, serving. And, and we've got so much more to, further to go and God's been had, had his hand on us. But I just want to take a moment today and just thank God and celebrate for what he's done in the life of True Life Community Church. And we praise God for that. Amen. 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 We went through COVID together. We shut down for quite a while, and, uh, and, and it caused us to be agile and flexible, and we saw things happen. So Today, uh, we're going to continue the sermon series in 1 John. Uh, 1 John is, uh, is just a great book. I think back to my days in college. I had two years of Greek in college, and Greek classes, you know, you heard the expression, that's Greek to me. Um, I, I loved Greek classes. I, I was a favorite class of mine because of the instructor, but because of all the nuances in the language and the, and the words and what they meant and, and all that it was that we had this Bible given to us in the New Testament in Greek and the Old Testament in Hebrew. And Greek was uh, fun. But in level one class of Greek, uh, level one, we did First John because First John is very elementary in terms of words that are used in the, in the way that he writes. Light, darkness, love. <laughs> you know, you know, you've got the theme of, you've been hearing Gene's sermons on this. You can see how it's pretty simple in, in the Greek language. But then when you go to level two, you go to participle Pete, which is Peter. And Peter was a lot more complicated in what he said and how he wrote. And so, so we've been enjoying uh, the study in First John, and I've thoroughly enjoyed pre prepping for this week and getting ready to unpack 1 John chapter 2, verses 7 through 17 for you. There are three portions of scripture that I'm going to cover. And when there's three portions of scripture, there's three themes. There's three things that are areas that I see that need to be addressed and, and for us to think about today. And especially on this day. We all know what this day is. I'm sure there's probably not a person that got up and did not thank September 11th, right? 9-11. And we all knew where we were on that day, right? Uh, I was at the Illinois Baptist State Association in a board meeting with trustees all there. We were told we couldn't have our cell phones because they didn't want us checking our phones and stuff. And cell phones were pretty new at that time too. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't like today. It wasn't as fancy of phones, flip phones. But we were in the meetings and my wife was trying to call me the whole time and my phone just wasn't on me. And so that was kind of a... But we, I was there with uh, the family and staff that I served with, and we went through that together. But we all know right where we were when that happened, don't we? Uh, for a generation, they knew where they were when Pearl Harbor happened. They knew that very place they were, or when John F. Kennedy was assassinated. But for this generation, and I'm thinking there's probably even some kids here today, I know there's some, that, that weren't alive during that time in 9-11 and don't have a history or a memory of that. But it does stir up all kinds of things for us. On the positive side, it stirs up the fact that we know that there are heroes everywhere among us. And we think about first responders on this day. We think about, too, when we think about this, this time that how our country did come together 
and we flew the flag and we did take we did we did measure what that life is brief and that we do need to work together and and there was a sense of unity in this country that we've so lost and left over the years and then and there's another thing that we really tuck from this is the um, the fact of those first responders but there were some lessons that we learned from this terrorist attack that happened and there were some things that we did differently air travel never the same I try, I've traveled over the years a lot and and uh, you know you never had to take your shoes off you could have people go right to the gate when you're at the gate and go and you didn't have to have your stuff gone through you didn't have to do the x-rays you didn't have to raise your hands up you know in that thing like you do and all the stuff that that happened because of that and we also understand too that things changed when it came to homeland security and how interagencies work together and they share information that's probably a good thing that came out of that we also know that there was a war on terror that that happened and we went to their soil to fight them there and again that's a whole political thing but uh, but I, I really am thankful for all the brave soldiers that have gone and fought and, and fought terrorism on their soil and not on, on, on our, so it's not here. But then, you know, we would hear things like, if you see something, say something. And, and then one of the things that I thought about too was, do you remember we had those terror threat levels? Probably never, haven't seen that in quite a while, but there were like different colors. And it was like orange was kind of the one that was kind of the, the normal that we were under this orange alert but when it got to red it was called severe it was a severe alert it was like there is an imminent terrorist threat that is, is going to happen you know it's like be on your diligent guard uh, be ready um, and that's what i've entitled this sermon today is be vigilant be vigilant because there are threats everywhere and the threat level is severe and as John is writing to those early believers, John was an apostle who, who wrote the Gospel of John. Gene's probably already talked about this, but it probably won't hurt to cover it again. He wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote the five chapters that we see here in 1 John. He wrote 2 John, which is one chapter. He wrote 3 John, which is one chapter, short ones. You could read those in real quick time. And then he wrote the book of Revelation, chapter 20. There's 22 chapters. 50 chapters in our New Testament we have because of John the Apostle. John had a message that was countercultural because he was relaying the message of Jesus. And the message went against the flow, but it always had a tender tone to it. John was traditionally known as the pastor at the church in Ephesus. And he was an elderly John because he was the one that lived the longest out of all those disciples, those first apostles. And he got the revelation from, of Jesus on that Isle of Patmos where he was uh, exiled out there to, to basically die and put away. And John had a tender tone about him because he was known for like always saying, little children love one another. Little children love one another. If you brought him here today, he'd be saying the same thing. Little children love one another. But there was a threat against the church. And the threat was, yes, persecution, yes, the, 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 the heavy hand of the, the law, the government was coming down upon the church, and that was a big part of it. But there was a threat that, that, that he addresses in 1 John, and he knew there was these believers that, that needed to hear this word and needed to hear this message, and there, there were threats of watching out for infiltrators like Antichrist. Uh, that's, that's who Gene's going to preach about next week, about Antichrist 
Christ, plural, and the Antichrist that's coming. That's the, the next passage uh, that starts after verse 17. But for today, he addresses three things that I see are threats to our church here, to your Christian walk yourself, and to us as a church collectively, Big C, the church out, out at large. And so it's still today, it's still there. And so I'm going to read these three passages in, um, in kind of uh, chunks. And so I'm not going to read them all at the same time, but I'm going to read the first chunk, the first portion right here in verse 7. So in 1 John chapter 2, verse 7, you'll see it on your screen, but I hope you have it in front of you on your phone or on your, in your Bible. And in verse 1 it says, I mean verse 7, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. And in this paragraph that John is addressing this to, he calls the, these people beloved. John was the disciple who said about himself, he said this of himself, and think about this, said, I am the disciple who Jesus loved. <laughs> and it kind, of, it kind of like almost comes across like, well, yeah, he loves me best. <laughs> you know, I'm his favorite. And we even know that he sat beside him at the Lord's Supper, not, not in the Da Vinci one where they're all facing forward, but, you know, they, but he was like leaning against his breast. I mean, he was like really close to you know, his chest. He was just right there by Jesus' heart. He loved Jesus, and he talked about Jesus' love over and over again. John 3, 16, uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He said, brother, they will know you're my disciples by how you love one another. Or in John 15, 13, where Jesus said, greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And that's my testimony verse where Jesus saved me when I read that, and I understood he died for me. But in John's gospel, he talked about how much God loves us. And, he, and, it, and it's, a, a, it's a gospel of relationship all the way through it. It's, it's speaking of the relationships that Jesus had and the relationship most of all that he had with his father as he came as God incarnate to walk this earth and to live 33 years and die upon a cross and be buried and rise again for our sins and die for us. That's love. In fact, Paul commentated on it and said, God demonstrated his love to us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That is love that's beyond description, love beyond belief, love beyond any, it's self-sacrificing, unconditional love that our Father, our God has that he gave to us in Christ. And, and John was that apostle of love. And, and that Bible that we have here from Genesis to Revelation is a book about relationships. It's about a, a relationship with God and man. And that relationship at the beginning in Revelation was a good relationship. They were in the garden and they walked together and it was a great place. It was paradise. But sin entered into the picture. There was creation and then there was a fall. 
And then the rest of the Bible, all the way through, is showing us, even in Genesis 3, when God prophesied that there would come one from the woman's seed that would, that would crush the serpent's head, all the way through is a story of redemption and the story of restoration that we see at the end when everything, when he makes all things new. And man, that, that gives me goosebumps just to say that. I don't know about you. But the Bible's a book about a relationship, but it's not just any kind of relationship. As Henry Blackaby would put this word in front of relationship and it changes everything, he called it a love relationship. We have a love relationship with God. It's a covenant of love that he's expressed his love to us. He's, he's adopted us as his children. He's chosen us. He's elected us. He's called us to be his own. And God is so rich in his love towards us that we can't even measure it high, the depths or, or the width of it. Uh, it it's immeasurable and it's in, infinite in his love. And so the threat that I see in this passage that I just read to you, and I'm going to point out a few words, what do you think the threat is? The threat is hatred. Hatred. I can't understand on 9-11 when they show those pictures of all those people that flew the planes into the building, into the Pentagon, into the World Trade Center. When they see those pictures, how a person could be filled with such hate to do something like that. And I think about hatred and how horrible it is. And it, it is, hatred is the source of murder. In fact, Jesus himself, when he came and he talked about, about murder, he, he, upped, he upped the stakes, so to speak. He said, but you've said that it is, that murder, that, that murder is, is, the commandment is, thou shalt not murder. And Jesus said, but I say unto you that if you have a thought, if you're angry and you have angry thoughts towards another person, you have murdered them in your heart. Basically, that's the Bob paraphrase. What you've done is if you think it and you feel it, and so all of us are guilty of hatred to some degree. Don't you really, doesn't it really upset you <laughs> when you think about a child when he says, I hate you. You ever seen a little child throwing that temper and getting mad and saying, I hate you? I've seen that before. And it's just so sad to think about it. And it is so childish to think the parents who love them so that the child would, would scream something in their, in their rage that I hate you. But that's what we've done to God. We have basically said that I hate you, God. And, uh, and but yet he still loved us in spite of us being his against him. And, uh, and so look in the passage. I want you to see a few things that I want to point out. He says, I'm I am writing you no new commandment. Several times in this book, he uses the word I am writing. In the first chapter, if you remember when Gene talked about it, he talked about I am writing to you so that you, your joy may be what? Full. And then even in this passage that we're going to look at, the next portion of scripture, he is going to use the word I am writing to uh, he uses it seven times in this passage of scripture that we're examining today. Seven times he says, I am writing. And it's very important when you write something down. In fact, I'm always, always tickled when somebody wants to take notes when you're when preaching. Because if you take a note, you're going to remember something and go back to it. And if, if God is speaking to you, you ought to write it down. You ought to write, write it down. If God says something to you, write it down so you can go back and ponder on it and look at it and retain it. Because when you write stuff down, that's why you took notes in class, right? So you'd be ready for the test. And so John is writing. 
And he's not writing to them a new commandment here, he says, but it's an old one, but, it, but it's a fresh one. You ever bought a new car? I've never had a new car. I've never bought one right off the showroom. I've always had a car that was new to me, you know? It's like new to me. And that's the idea of the word new in here. It's fresh. This is fresh. This commandment is in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 6, the Lord said, Love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and, and, and love him with everything you've got, because the Lord our God is one Lord, Deuteronomy 6 says. And in Leviticus 18, he said, Love your neighbor as you love yourself. And when Jesus was, was confronted by a lawyer who said, what's the greatest commandment of all? You know what he said? Jesus said, the first one is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he said, the second one is likened to it, love your neighbor as yourself. That wasn't a new commandment. That was old. That was in the Old Testament. But Jesus elevated it and brought it to a whole nother level, just like he did when he, when he talked about hatred. But if we love one another, did you know there are are literally pages of one another's in the scripture. There is a, there is a, you can go through and see, it's like encourage one another, honor one another, love one another, prefer one another. Uh, on and on the scriptures go in the New Testament, the one another's of the Bible. And we're to do that to one another. And there's nothing like that can really hinder a church from being what it's called to be or hinder you in your own life than having hatred in your heart or having broken relationship. And having a relationship that's not right. And God wants to purge us from that and cleanse us of that and get rid of that in our life. I have a story I'd like to share with you that we, uh, we lived in Georgia for a while. We lived in Holly Springs, Georgia. And, uh, and in Holly Springs, Georgia, we were there. I was serving with the mission board where I flew out, out of Atlanta and worked, worked nationally. And, and now I have a regional role. It's kind of gone back and forth for me. But we were in Atlanta at that time. And, and we were living about 45 minutes from the airport, and we lived in this area that it was a subdivision. We'd never lived in a subdivision before. We'd always had kind of like a little farm. We lived, you know, we had houses around us this time. It was kind of different. But we had all the neighbor kids hung out. We had a basketball court in the backyard, really nice blacktop one with a glass court. And we, we, the kids would play there all the time. And they'd play airsoft out through the woods that were out there bordering our area. And, and then... Then we had that bubble in the real estate market. Remember that? And that when that bubble burst and houses lost their value, about that same time, the mission board asked us if we would move to Indianapolis, and we were in the process of moving. And so that houses were like empty all over the place in Atlanta and all over, but they were empty, foreclosures happening. And we had our house, and we were hearing this noise up in the attic, and we didn't know what it was. We'd hear this, this rustling, and we thought, oh no, a squirrel's got into our attic. A squirrel's in the attic. And so my son Andy, at the time, he got his BB gun, and he's up there with his BB gun in the attic, sitting up there watching for that squirrel, and he's going to take that squirrel out. You know, a little 12-year-old boy doing that. And he's like up there in that attic, ready to make that happen. And, uh, and he never did get him. But my neighbor, Tim, gave me a big trap. I like that. And, and it was like a big mouse trap, you know, you know, get them. So I put that up there, put some bait on it, and all of a sudden we're downstairs, and I hear this, ah, we got it. So I crawled up into the attic, climbed that ladder into the attic, and looked there, and I said, oh, no, that's not a squirrel, that's a rat. <laughs> it was a rat, a big rat, big long tail, the whole thing. I had to carry that thing down 
get it out and get it out of the house and you know freak Dan out. And and the and my my brother-in-law did a cartoon book at Christmas time, making fun of us having rat in our attic. But it wasn't fun. But I read a quote that made me think of that, and it relates to hatred. Because if hatred, if you're like trying to get a rat out of your house by burning down your house, that's what hatred is. It's like acid inside a container that's, that's going to harm the container yourself. And if you have that kind of thing going on, you are asking for trouble. And you're asking for all kinds of heartache, and bitterness becomes a root of bitterness, and it begins to eat you up. So I just ask you, how are you doing in your relationships? Are you loving? If you're filled with God, you're going to be filled with love. If you are loving and you know Jesus and you love Jesus, you're going to love the brothers. Look at what he says there in, in the verses. We see that um, in verse number, says that I gave you this new commandment, this fresh one, and the darkness is passing away, true light. And he that says that he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So John here is giving us a litmus test, so to speak, to say, okay, if you are filled with hate, you can't say you're a believer. There's a problem. There's a disconnect here. And I'm telling you, I've seen it in so many churches over the years, and I've seen it in, amongst families. I've seen it in individuals where hatred creeps in and tears things apart. So we need to do everything we can to work at the unity, to love one another, and be the loving church that God's called us to be. And so I, I just say that that's the first threat, the threat of hatred, and it's the threat that fights against relationship. The second one that I think is very important, and we see it in the next portion of scripture, is a threat, a threat of stagnation. I could have said stalling or stunting or, or just, you know, lack of growth. But in the next verses, he says in verse 12, 13, and 14, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you children because you know the Father. I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. It's been said that there's four phases to life, children, youth, young adults, and man, you look good for your age. <laughs> and you think about here there are phases that we see of growth we see levels of growth we see levels of growth that, that he is saying ought to be there's nothing wrong with being a baby it's just staying a baby in fact in this verse right here that literally in the greek language in verse 12 when he says little children there it's the word for infant nursing babies and we have a little baby that's been at our house our grandson ozzy who's been there and we, we, you know, he, he eats a lot, he poops a lot, he, uh, he cries from time to time, and he sleeps a lot. And now he's like smiling and looking at things, and you know, as, as he's growing, he's going to be doing more. He's going to roll over, he's going to sit, he's going to develop and grow into a little toddler where he's going to start walking. He'll crawl and then he'll walk and, and be talking and, 
and uh, probably no two language or three languages at some point in his life. And so we're, we're excited to have him around and having the babies. And a, and a healthy church is going to have babies, newborn babies. Because when you're born again, when Jesus Christ saves you and you are born from above, you are a babe in Christ. Did you know that? And you need to be fed the milk. You need to have the milk of the word of God. The Bible says in 1 Peter that the milk is the, is, is the word of God that nurtures and feeds us. And, but yet, we're not supposed to stay at that milk stage. We're supposed to go to strong food, to meat, and move forward, and move beyond the elementary things. And we see here that little children is like the next step, moving into that more toddler, and the word, there's a different word in there, the nuance of the word is that the little children, and moving on to being a child. And Jesus said to, that you got to become like a child to enter the kingdom of heaven. And he didn't say you got to be childish, because in fact, Paul said you put away childish things, but you are to be childlike and grow as a child of God and grow in, in your knowledge of him. And then we see it moving to another progression of level to the young men, to the young men. The young men were strong. The young men had the word of God in them. You know how Psalm 119 says, how will a young man cleanse his way? By hiding his word in God's word in your heart. And that's the young men who are like Joshua, you know, be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. The Lord is with you. You know, wherever you go, he is with you. And, and that strength and the courage that comes from the young men. And I'm thankful for the babies we have in our church. I'm thankful for the children that we have in our church. I'm thankful for the young men, spiritually speaking, I'm saying. And young women as well. I'm not going to, you know, leave that out. But also we see here the fathers. You see that? There's another. But... The fathers were people that knew God. The word know is used 36 times in 1 John. And the word know there just doesn't mean I know about something, but I know intimately. I know experientially. And these fathers were people that walked with God and they had relationship with God. And they were like a Caleb who would say, I'm going to take that mountain. Or they were like Anna or, or Zechariah who, who, even in their older age, looked for the Messiah and believed and looked for him. Simeon is another example. So the church is made up of young and old people and, and you know, everything in between. But this here shows me a, an intentional pathway of growth and development. It's seen throughout the scriptures in 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. Uh, Paul said, what you heard from me, teach other faithful men and then teach it to others. Uh, when you read the Great Commission, make disciples of all nations, you make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. And there's, there's, a, there's a progression to this. But what's happened is we become stagnant, we become stalled, and we, and we just stop at babyhood or we stop at childhood. There are a lot of people that have been believers for years and years and years, and they're still at the baby stage. They haven't memorized scripture, they don't read the word of God regularly, they don't pray regularly, they don't witness the, their, the, to the gospel, the faith, they don't worship, they don't give, they don't, they're just stuck in that little baby stage where they've not been developed and grow. And we need intentional pathways within our church. Not only do we need healthy relationships and love to permeate everything we do and saturate all that we do, but we need to have like moving every member to be a missionary. That ought to be our theme, moving every member to be a missionary. And you have a mission field. Your first mission field is your family, to lead your family well as a godly man, godly woman, and to lead them well. And your mission starts right there at home. Your mission also is your neighborhood, those people that live around you. 
Are you praying for them? Are you engaging them? Are you being a good neighbor? Are you being hospitable? Are you trying to share the gospel with them? We also have a mission field, our, our 370 Valley right here, if you're a part of True Life Community. We've identified the Orchard Farm School District, the 370 Valley, we call it, as our mission field to get the gospel here and help everybody to have an opportunity to respond to Jesus. And our church ought to always be about moving a member to become a missionary. And we not always evaluate how are we doing when it comes to that. And that's not just going to happen when Bob or Gene or somebody else gets up here and preaches. You've got to learn how to self-feed. You've got to learn how to, to lead yourself. And I've and I got to say, when we think about David in 1 Samuel 30, verse 6, it says he, he was really distressed about some things. And what he did was he strengthened himself in the Lord. I had a mentor of mine tell us about that. We were going through a time of transition at the mission board, and he had told me it was about 15 years ago, and he said he gave us a, a really good pep talk, encouraging exhortation, and said, don't you count on anybody else to strengthen you. You need to strengthen yourself in the Lord like David did and turn to him and find your strength and your support in him and stay the course and be about what God's called you to be. We, we've developed a tool called the Multiplication Pipeline, and in that tool, we, we want to move people from learners to leaders to multipliers. I love that expression. Or another way to describe the pipeline is to talk about discovering, developing, and deploying. You're moving them from a point of discovery to development, and then they're being deployed to go on mission. That's the New Testament pattern. That's the Old Testament pattern. That's how we see God move. When we think about it in terms of like baseball, and aren't you, I think Albert's going to get it. He's only four away. I think he's going to do it. But you think about baseball, there's single A, double A, triple A, and then there's the major leagues. There's an intentional pathway that players go on to get developed to where they can go to the major league. A church, that ought to be heart and soul of everything we do at a church, is to have an intentional pathway that when somebody comes in that door, they receive Jesus Christ, they get baptized, and then they're ready to move into becoming baby, child, Young man, young woman, or father or mother in the faith. Maturity, growing in Christ, not being stunted. If you don't have the right nutrients, if you don't have the right exercise, all the F3 guys know this, right? If you don't have the plenty of rest, you are not going to grow and mature and be everything you can be physically. And the same is true when it comes to spiritually. If you're not getting the nutrients you need from the Word of God and from the fellowship of other believers you're going to stall and stagnate and be stunted in your growth in Christ. And Paul had lots to say about that throughout, as well as John right here. It's the heartbeat of Jesus. He's shaping us. He's forming us into the image of Christ. And, uh, man, I wish I could spend more time on this, but let's look at the last portion of the scripture. Not only a threat of hatred, we have a threat of, of um, stagnation, and we also have here a threat of worldliness. John addresses worldliness. I didn't say wordle, okay? How many of you do wordle? It's part of Dana's routine. Every morning she gets her wordle. Sometimes she gets it on the second try. Yeah, they ever get it on the, one time I got it on the first. You know what I'm talking about? It's this game you play where you guess words and you gotta put, now yeah. I got, cause I always had the same word I always used was focus. It was start my, now you gotta use a five letter word. My word was focus. And so I used focus, and that was the word that day, and so I got it. <laughs> so, so anyway, um, totally unrelated. Okay. In verse number 15, let's look at this portion. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 
For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, it is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Man. You know what I mean when I say worldliness? Worldliness is, it's not, remember that song, I see trees of green, you know. I don't know who sings that song, but some of you, you probably know. But what a wonderful world we have. God's creation all around us, trees, clouds, sun, rainbows, everything he's made. That's not what John's talking about. We, we love and appreciate what God's made for us in all creation. But what he's talking about here is the Greek word is cosmos. It's where we get our word cosmopolitan. Cosmos is the world system. It's like if you would say the world of sports or the world of politics. It's a system. It's a way of thinking. It's a whole structure, process. And there's a worldliness that's out there. Now, God has called us. You know, the word was relationship that countered hatred. The word is discipleship that counters the stagnation. And that's what discipleship is, a pathway. But the word that counters this is holiness. And I think the great need for the church today is holiness. And holiness is a foreign subject to a lot of folks, but when you think, look through the scriptures and you see how many times at first God is holy and God says he's holy, you need to be holy because I'm holy, and what in the world does holy mean? Holy is set apart. It's a cut above. We need to be a cut above this world. We shouldn't be just like the world. We need to be separate and distinct and different in our lifestyle, our behaviors. Not so much about actions here as it is about attitude of the heart because it starts with the attitude of the heart. And our lifestyles need to reflect the person and the, and the walk of Jesus Christ in everything we do. And that's the counter to worldliness. When he says this, if you love the world, you're, you're going to not have the love of the Father in you. You can't have competing loves. I remember that uh, there, I recommend you young people never do this. Never do this. Never when you're, when you're dating, never do this. Don't try to date two people at the same time. I did that. <laughs> when I was single, that was before I met Dana. That did not end well. That did not end well. And, um, and, and Jesus said, you're either for me or against me for a reason. You cannot ride the fence. You have to be, you have to stand apart and come out from among them and be different. Is what God has called us to be. And that's what holiness means. Jerry Bridges in his book, The Pursuit of Holiness, describes holiness like this. There's a holiness that comes to us because of the work of Christ what he did on the cross for us, that's an imparted holiness that makes us right with God. But then there's another holiness that is the work of the Holy Spirit and what he's doing in our life, throughout our life, to what's called sanctifying us. He's creating within us the image of Christ. And we're not no longer conformed or squeezed into this world, but we're being transformed day by day through Jesus Christ. So how are you doing in that walk of holiness with that definition? How are you doing with holiness? I think of the worldliness. James said you could be spotted by the world. James said that if you're a friend of the world, you're an enemy of God. Paul said that not to be conformed to this world, but be transformed in Romans 12, 1 and 2. Again, shaping. Uh, I, I like Keith Green music, and you know some of you may know who I'm talking about, but he had a song, You Love the World, But You're Avoiding Me. 
And I often think about this, how things can creep into my life. And this is just one example. A line in that song says, you love the light of your TV. Um, you love the world, but you're avoiding me. Uh, my word sits there upon your desk, but you love your books and magazines the best. That's what holiness is. Your love for God outweighs anything else in this world. And the older you get in your walk with Christ, the more you realize this world's not my home. I mean, I love baseball. I like Cardinals baseball. I love to ride my bicycle. I love lots of things I love to do. But that definition of love is a whole lot different because this, this love that I'm talking about are the things that I want to love that I'm not going to put before God ever. And any of these things could become things you put before God. And so holiness is the secret there. I want to, to bring this home with the thought about back to 9-11. In Luke chapter 13, verses 1 and 4, 1 through 3, Jesus told a story about this tower that fell. It was called the Tower of Siloam. And there were, there were several people that were killed. There wasn't thousands, but there was like, I want to say 14, 15, but I, I don't know the exact number. And for sake of time, I'm not going to read it to you right now, but go back and read that. But Jesus talked about that tower. And, and, the, and the context was, do you think those people were greater sinners than the ones right here? And they weren't. We're all sinners. And on that day of 9-11, those people died. And you remember that day, how it was so heart-wrenching to think of people making their final phone call. And they all were saying, I love you. And, you know, they're on a plane making a call or they're in the buildings making a call. And, and, and they're, they're expressing their love and what really matters to them. And we have a savior who's not a, I get around to it someday because all of us are gonna die, whether it be a heart attack, a car crash, or, or a cancer, or whatever. Something is going to get us, we're going to die. That sentence was pronounced. But Jesus is not the kind of savior who can say, well, I'll get around to him someday kind of savior. And those people, when they got up, in fact, Billy Graham, when he spoke in the National Cathedral, this is what he said. Let me read the quote to you. Billy Graham said, this event reminds us of the brevity of life. We never know when we will be too, too will be called into eternity. I doubt if these people who got on those planes or who walked into the World Trade Center or the Pentagon on Tuesday thought that it would be the last day of their life. And that's why we each must take our own spiritual um, need and commit.